Please enter your password, then press pound. You have 17 new voice messages. First voice message. Striker, Juan Rubin. Wish you'd pick up because I'm about three minutes away. Looking forward to seeing you. Bye. To erase this message, press 7. To save it, press 9. Message erased. Your name is Stryker? Yes, it is. That's fire. <laughs> wow. I love sandwiches. It's called tuna on toast. I, I, I spit. I don't know what I'm doing. I love music and I love those that create it. Stryker's here. Tuna on toast. Yes. Tuna on Toast. Yeah, welcome to another episode of Tuna on Toast. As you know, Ilan Rubin is going to be our guest, and this guy is a musical prodigy. He's only, I think he's only 31 now. Joined Nine Inch Nails at 19 years old. We get into all that. It's an incredible story. Very inspiring, and he is so smart. This episode of Tuna on Toast is brought to you by Hammer Toyota. Here in Southern California, out there in Mission Hills, I have a Toyota Venza from Hammer. Katie, my wife, Katie's wonderful. She has a RAV4 hybrid, which is the car I had before the Venza. I had a different RAV4 than she has. I've also had a Highlander, another RAV4, and two Priuses, all from Hammer Toyota. Why do I keep going back to Hammer Toyota? Because they're nice, they're smart, they're fun. They treat you like a rock star. It's just, it's a good environment. It's not your stereotypical car lot. It's a great experience. It's never, like, it's always a weird feeling when you're going to get a new car because you feel like, oh, they're going to screw me, blah, 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 blah. They just treat you great. H-A-M-E-R. They are HammerToyota.com. I was all pumped and prepped to tell you the story of something that happened to me just a couple days ago, but I'm scrapping that because 15 minutes ago, and I'm sitting in Palm Springs today. I'm not in the Tuna Anto studio. Alan Rubin and I, we were in Tuna Anto studio. But, okay, this is going to sound, uh, I don't care how this sounds. I'm going to tell you exactly what the hell happened. I was driving a golf cart, and I had my 15-year-old dog in the passenger seat. His name is Bonsai. One of his most favorite things in the world is to get into the golf cart. It's like being on Space Mountain if you love roller coasters, he enjoys it so much. The guy can't really see, he can't hear, but he loves the outdoor feeling and the wind blowing on his face. And before you get all caring on me, like, is he secure in the golf cart? No, he's not that secure. No, he's somewhat secure. He's not going anywhere. So we're cruising around, and I don't care how old you are, driving a golf cart is so fun. So I'm driving the golf cart. Bonsai is sitting in the passenger seat. When I say seat, it's like a bench. A golf cart is a bench. And then out of the corner of my left eye, I see what I believe to be a golden retriever running at the golf cart that I am driving that Bonsai is in. I'm like, where is this golden retriever dog going right now? Before I know it, the golden retriever jumps in the golf cart. We're going like four miles an hour. And he doesn't get in on the seat area. He's where my feet are with the gas and the brake. And he's right there. And I can't get to the gas or the brake because the dog is there. So I'm like trying to touch his butt because now we're I don't, we're not going that fast. We're going like three miles an hour now. But we're still moving with Bonsai and a Golden Retriever in there. And then I'm like tapping his butt gently. That sounds very sexual. I'm tapping 
the golden retriever's butt, and then somehow he's able to to jump up and land in the middle between Bonsai and I. So now it's me, this random golden retriever in Bonsai, who I don't even think knows that there's another dog there. Again, my dog doesn't know what's going on. Then the owner of the dog comes jogging over, and she's like, I'm so sorry. And let me tell you something. That experience was probably in the top five most fun things that has ever happened to me. (laughs) Being in a golf cart with my dog and a golden retriever jumps in and then eventually ends up on the seat next to me and next to my dog. So I talked to the owner a little bit. She's super cool. I don't know her name, but the dog's name is Finn. Oh, one more piece of information on this. When I said, is a golden retriever? I don't really know. I... It looks like a gold retriever. She's like, no, this is a golden doodle with a hint of terrier. And I didn't understand what that meant, but it was a freaking cute dog and a fun experience. When the dog uh, was getting down, like jumped down, he licked my calf, my right calf, and then he was on his way, and then Bonsai and I were on our way. And now here we are introducing this episode of Tuna on Toast. Ilan Rubin, he's been a professional musician since he was 12 years old. He had the eye of the tiger to be a professional, younger than 12 years old. He knows music history. He's got opinions on music. When this guy discusses music, to me it means more because he's such a student of the game, of the music game, and he's so good. He's in Angels and Airwaves, Tom DeLonge's band. He's all, he writes, uh, co-writes many of those songs. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the youngest musician ever to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of Nine Inch Nails. He auditioned at 19. He tells the whole story. I hope you listen to this entire episode, whether it's a, it's a drive you're going to be on to and from work, back to work, school, or you're going for a workout or you're cleaning the house. This may be a two-parter for you, but I hope you stick with it all the way until the end. Here we go. Let's get to it. He came over to the house. He's a great guy. Unbelievable talent. He's a prodigy. Here he is. Please welcome to the Tuna on Toast studio, Elon Rubin. Test one, two. We're ready to go. Look at all this. Very nicely done. (laughs) Thank you. And you do all of them in here, right? So like that Aquadolls things that I saw this morning, was that in here? Yeah. Oh, very cool. So you're good with just water? Yeah. All right, here we go. Three, two, one. For those of you listening to this, we've already had about 15 minutes of excitement outside of this room. That's one word for it, yes. <laughs> excitement. I am asking you, after you, if you're just listening, go to the YouTube channel and watch the activities mm. that I forced Elon into. I can confidently say those were three things I did not expect to do upon coming over here and meeting you. I thought for sure you'd be able to do... Well, I'm not going to say it. See, here's the thing about Elon that most of you... No, but if you don't, you should know. This guy can play just about every instrument and do it very, very well. And he's been doing it for a long time. And what I find so cool is there are some athletes who are incredible at 10 to 20 years old. And by 25 or 30, they're still good, but they've had enough of it because they've been, their brain is matured while doing, they're like, "Ah, I'm done with that. Mm -hmm. But you seem to like, seem to love the craft even more at this point than you did 10, 15, 20 years ago. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm constantly learning. There's always something to learn, regardless of it being something musical. There's just more information out there to absorb. And the older I get, I actually feel like 
the less time I have or the more time has passed me. So I feel like I'm constantly needing to catch up, which is ridiculous, but that's the way I work. Do you ever uh, just sit there by yourself in practice, whether it's drums or guitar or keyboards or just singing? Like, what do you do on your in your spare time when it comes to your craft? So I suppose sitting down and setting aside time to practice is something that happens less and less, only because I get busier and busier in terms of all things music. And for example... Since the pandemic lockdown, all this stuff, I've finally gotten into film scoring, which is something I've always wanted to do. And that in itself took a lot of learning. Not that I know anywhere near all there is to know, but I'm very thorough. I like to read books, watch tutorials, practice, study. I'm a very boring individual, if you haven't already gathered that. No, 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 no. I really wanted to put in the time to have a real base level of knowledge before actually going out and and getting work. So if we just take a snapshot of the last last couple months of my life, I just did a five-week tour with Angels and Airwaves. Right. While I was on that tour, I wrapped up my first movie. I started (sighs) scoring Tom's movie that he's finished, his directorial debut, I'm wrapping up a, a documentary, and I'm just getting all these projects done, which is great, but that doesn't leave a lot of time to say, rather than working, I'm going to practice on my scales or, right, right. or learn something. So That makes sense. I will take a few minutes just to kind of clear the brain and do something in terms of like singing. I, I probably drive my wife nuts, but I, <laughs> I, I love to have an acoustic guitar around or sit at the piano, and I will do a Beatles set. I just have a lengthy a Beatles. set. I just go a for it. Set. I have like three or four Beatles lyric and chords books, and I'm just like, if I'm in the mood to just sing or do something, I'll just crack it open and go for it. Are the Beatles the greatest band of all time, or is it Led Zeppelin? Is it the Beach Boys? Is it somebody uh, in the last twenty years? Who, well, I, who it's is definitely it? not anybody in the last twenty years. Okay. That's for sure. All right, but you named three great ones. Um, I actually, for anybody who does know of me, is probably already rolling their eyes because I always refer to Led Zeppelin, the Beatles and Queen as my personal like trinity of music, wow. all the inspiration, vibe, technicality. For me, those are just never ending wells of, of inspiration, but it's tough. So I think the Beatles were the greatest songwriters of all time, Leonard McCartney. I do think the greatest band for individuals who made something that nobody can touch is Led Zeppelin. That's my opinion. You mentioned you drive potentially your wife crazy if you just start singing the Beatles songs. Mm. This is, when it comes to music, how I drive my wife crazy. Mm. The Beatles will come on, Mm. or Led Zeppelin, or even Guns N' Roses. Mm. And I say, I pause, I'm like, can you believe how good these guys are? (laughs) I can't believe how good these bands are. And then I say, I pull over, I'm like, I gotta see how old they were Mm. when they created these songs. Yeah, And to be as young as many of those artists were, to come up with the lyrics and the music and for the most part, get along, get along well enough to create those songs, Mm -hmm. I think is underrated. It is underrated in an astonishing amount of time and without any of the technical advancements that we have. I mean, you couldn't fake greatness at that point in time. You can do it now. You've been able to fake Mm. perfection for many, many years now, but... I'm sure we, I mean, I can go on about this for years. I like this but, kind of stuff. Man. But I totally agree with you. I mean, you think that by the time the Beatles broke up, they weren't even in their 30s? And stuff everything like yeah. they accomplished was in around eight years, give or take, in terms of their 
recorded output that we all worship today. I mean, they had hours and hours and hours of live experience before they, they blew up. But if you just look at their recorded output, the amount of music and how prolific they were is astounding by any standards. Totally, totally. And some yeah. of my, some of the bands that I go to that I love over the last 20 years mm. only made three albums or four and then called it quits. Yeah. Every now and then they could do a show, but then they were done. Like, it was really, in my head, it was nine albums. Then mm. I go, look, hold on, it was three albums, and then you put out a live one, yeah. and that was it. Mm. Um, wait, what are your go-to Beatles songs that you play at home? Ooh, so here's slightly deeper cut. One of my favorite ones to do is uh, No Reply, the first song on Beatles for Sale. Okay. I love that one. I do like to do a lot of the ones on Hard Day's Night, and then I Should Have Known is one of my favorites to sing. It's just fun, you know? Yeah. I'll be back. Uh, then I go, you've got to hide your love away. I know I'm kind of doing mid and earlier Beatles, but I kind of just go all over the shop. When I'm at the piano, I'll do more like Abbey Road stuff and some White Album stuff. So I'm all over the place. Is it cool if I ask you questions about your own solo music under your umbrella? I would love that. Go all right. It. I want to ping pong all over the place. I'm here. The new regime, yes. which seemed to be like it was about to really get going mm -hmm. just before the pandemic. That's how I remember it. You know, I'd, I would love to think so. It's just the world's been so bizarre that I don't know what to make of anything. Weren't you ready to go out on the road in like February or March of 2020 I, I with actually, Silver Sun or no? I actually was out. So oh, you were out yeah, there doing it. Yeah. So I, anytime I hear about the new regime, I get this like pain oh, because... Man. I put out my my last album in in my estimation my best work out in March of 2020. Oh, so God. I Put a ton of effort into it as I always do, and was out to tour. And sometimes the heart, mind, body, and soul. Yeah, okay. that album, very lengthy album, very proud of it. You know, but considering that I do or did new regime stuff and now solo stuff, kind of in and around all the other things I do as a drummer, it's not very easy to say line up a tour or a support slot with an album release. This is one of the only times I can think of where they lined up beautifully. The tour was going very well. And as you can imagine, you've been to a million shows. Support bands, whether they're good or not, they're kind of at the, they're beholden to the audience of the headliner. So they may not care about anybody but mm. the main band, which honestly, I'd probably be the same way. But everything was going super well. The fans of Silver Sun Pickups were very receptive. We just felt like it was a great momentum building time. And Man. it collapsed incredibly quickly. I remember having a conversation with their tour manager thinking, so how are you feeling about this tour? Are we going to finish it? And he's like, well, if you had asked me a day or two ago, I'd say no problem. Now I'm kind of feeling maybe we have two or three shows left and we're going to have to call it. Next day, pull up to the venue, see that nobody has loaded in. And that what was it. What city was that in? Knoxville, Tennessee. So you're out in Knoxville. Yeah. That was it. How yeah. did you get back here? Drove back. In a bus, in an RV, in, in a, a van. I physically, as well as my other guys, we drove back straight from Tennessee, Knoxville, Tennessee, to um, San Diego, actually, to drop off a lot of gear, and then drove back home to L.A. Wow. Yeah. You know you created a great, a ton of great songs, and you were doing great on the road, but does your ego have to be put in check at all, or the way you tick up here, when you go from playing with some bands, whether it's Nine Inch Nails, or you're with Tom DeLonge, mm. 
as the headliners, and there's a lot of people out there. And now you're going, and it's it's your thing, but you're the opening band. How mm. does that work for you up here? Very good question. It's not it's not a a smack to the ego, to be honest with you. It's just it's two different things, and I'm very aware of that. I mean, especially if we're talking about Nine Inch Nails, which is at this point in time a legendary band. Sure. And you know, Tom's of course no slouch. Blink and Angels and Airwaves. And, and these are things that I didn't start. So I joined these bands knowing that they had already conquered and I was stepping into a tried and true institution. Trying to build from the ground up by myself was, of course, always going to be a challenge. So I've just always been aware of that. And I do joke around about it, but I'm honest in the sense that I don't let it spoil me. I have no problem finishing a headlining tour or festival and then go get in the van and drive us and the guys or one of the other guys driving me in the back uncomfortable with a van full of gear and doing that. You just got to do what you got to do. You know, That's cool I, as hell. I would be wow. shooting myself in the foot if I was like, no, this isn't good enough for me. It's like, it's, it's a different thing. And what I will say is that my affiliations in many ways are a very sharp dual edged sword. What I mean by that is People always assume that I have this colossal head start coming from a band like Nine Inch Nails or Angels and Airwaves, whatever it may be. And in some ways I do just because people are aware of those bands and as a result may be aware of me. But as you know, my solo music, whether it be The New Regime or what I'm putting out under my own name now, yeah. is nothing like either of them. Not, so, not at all. So if you have a Nine Inch Nails fan who's like, oh, I'm going to go listen to the drummer from Nine Inch Nails album he would, I wouldn't be surprised if he despised it, you know, or an Angels and Airwaves fan, assuming they're going to get something a little spacey, pop punky. I mean, I'm, I'm almost equally far away from both of the bands I'm best known for playing with. So you kind of either put this perception in somebody's head or it's, in many ways, it feels like a disadvantage is my long-winded wow. way of explaining that. So the two songs I know of that are under Elon Rubin, mm -hmm. Chaos in Motion yes. and Talk, Talk, Talk. Yes, sir. I love, and I'm not BSing, both of those songs. Thank you very much. Chaos in Motion, I've listened to maybe 15% more. Uh, and there's a movie coming out soon called Licorice Pizza. I've heard this name because okay. Licorice Pizza sounds like a terrible thing to eat, and it, but it really sticks in your head. I Now... I may get called out on this and screamed at. I haven't done any deep dive. I remember it possibly being a record store in Southern California when mm -hmm. I was growing up. But I hear Chaos in Motion and Talk, Talk, Talk. I'm like, this sounds like it should be in this movie. And this is going to be a, a huge movie. I think I'm um, drawing a blank on the director. Is it Paul Thomas Anderson? Is that who it is? I, I yes. It's ringing a bell. Who is a, just a genius wizard director, awesome movie maker. And I'm like, I wish this guy knew of your mute. This should be in here. If you have a way of getting in touch with him, pass it <laughs> along, and I will I will do what I can. But thank you. I, I always love hearing that a song of mine or something would work well in something else because it's obviously not what you're thinking about when you're writing, unless that's, of course, what you were hired to do or you're pitching something intentionally. But a song of mine in the, the New Regime catalog. Uh, this is a New World Was in a Shameless episode many years ago. Wow, And cool. it's just the instrumental bit, but watching something I did with my mental images and watching it put to something else on the screen, I was like, it's amazing how you're able to completely change the vibe of something you've heard just by changing the visuals, which is 
a really interesting thing when it comes to scoring because most musicians would probably think, yeah, I can write music, I can write music for movies, and that very well may be true, but it's a totally different experience when you are writing something while staring at a screen. And there's nothing there to guide you other than the emotions of the actors mm-hmm. and the lighting, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, there's no pre-recorded, uh, you have to come up with that yourself yeah. to, as another character, basically, it's, it's right? It's a great challenge, and I wow. like to be a bit of a problem solver. So especially if something isn't coming to me musically, because it's just not going to happen all the time, especially when you're watching something for the first time. And in my experience, let's say I'm drawing a blank, I think, what can I clue into here? What What's the facial expression? What are they trying to get across? And then I find a way to translate that into music. And of course, as I said earlier, this is very new to me, but these are one of the things you don't really realize until you just kind of get thrown in the thick of it. So... As a professional, what is more difficult? Writing, producing, playing the instruments, singing, talk, 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 <laughs> or scoring a giant scene? I know you're doing a whole movie. But I'll take one scene in particular, scoring a scene. With a complex scene, I would say the scene is, it is? is more difficult really? to do. Yes, because when it comes to my own music, for example, and as you probably do know, I write, play, and sing everything on the recording. So Let's repeat that, you guys. <laughs> Writes, yes. plays all the instruments, mm. sings, puts it all together. Yes. That's you. That's me. So, so freaking so, awesome, man. Thank you. So, so I'm the boss. I have nobody to argue yeah. with. <laughs> I am just in complete control. And not that I take that lightly. I mean, if I'm not happy with something, I'm going to keep changing it until I get it right. But when I reach that point of satisfaction, it's done, and I move on to the next one. You were, real quick, you were able to reach that point always mentally before yeah, you get it done? And, and here's why I will say that. I don't. I honestly don't force myself to write music. I could, but I don't like to kind of get the wrong thing stuck in my head. And if you're beating a dead horse, so to speak, musically trying to just finish something, in my opinion, you're probably not going to get your best work. So I don't okay. force it. I can literally write a verse, it'll come to me, I can go to pre-course, it'll come to me, and within a minute, I have what would be 30, 40% of the song. If you, if you keep in <laughs> oh, mind that it's crazy. obviously we're going to come back around and repeat it. Yeah. But if the chorus isn't coming to me, or the bridge isn't coming to me, I literally just get up and walk away. Or I'll go sing oh, a couple man. Beatles songs, or learn something, and yeah. kind of get away from it. And often enough, what happens to me, and tell me if this happens to you, because you're, you're, you're very active guy if you're trying to figure something out and you leave it you subconsciously keep working on it and i will find the answer comes to me when i'm not expecting it it's like the problem's just solving itself in back there and then i'll realize oh i'm humming the next part of the song that i stopped writing and that's it and then i just keep Absolutely. going so yeah i mean i've been in bands where they go with uh, or went with i should say quantity over quality and the idea was write a ton of songs and get the 10 best ones and my opinion's always been why bother creating something where 80 percent of it's shit only to get the the 20 percent that's decent interesting i always say i mean not everything's going to make it for one reason or another especially i know you're an album guy you gotta be yes yes Sometimes things get left off of an album because they don't get along with the other songs in terms of a sequence, but not sure. because the song isn't good enough. Right. But it's it's crazy how a lot, I'd say more so, the tactic and the strategy with writing songs today, especially considering 
production has become such a popular thing. People want to be producers now right. or have been wanting to be producers, but it's a very prevalent thing. Is it because they can be in their bedroom at home? They, they have all the tools that they can, they can just do it. There? I think that's a big part of it. Absolutely. I mean, just having the accessibility to technology that was 20 times more expensive 20 years ago, or right. frankly, borderline impossible. I'd say, I mean, what computers are capable of now is phenomenal and just how much cheaper everything's become. It's very accessible, uh, but at the same time, there's almost this uh, there's this different culture around it. Whereas I think more people would want to be the singer songwriter or the singer in a band or whatever it may be. I I'd say almost as many people want to be producers and maybe yeah, yeah, like yeah. the aspect of collaborating with multiple people and kind of just throwing in their two cents and being a part of all these different things rather than maybe taking all the pressure on their own shoulders. I don't know. There's a lot to it. Questions based on a lot of things you just said. The mm. first one is when I hear a band or an artist say, hey, we did 70 songs and we chose our best 12 mm. and there's no theme to the album. Mm. And then four years later, like, oh, these are the songs that didn't make it. I feel cheated mm. that those songs weren't good. Mm. That's even if that may not be the case for them. Mm. I don't like hearing when bands say they we have, and maybe they're not all complete at the time. They mm. were just a, an idea, but I don't like hearing that from bands because mm. you just you just want to hear everything that's available. Yes, yeah. and I don't know what like it just seems like. Well, if it wasn't good for them, why is it good? Why are you giving this to me now? Mm. If it wasn't good enough to make this uh, this album, and it wasn't a themed album. Very good point, um, and I totally understand you because I'm I'm the kind of person, and this is to my detriment. I obsess over whatever I'm into, right? <laughs> so rather than being the guy who says, oh, I love a hundred bands. I mean, I get made fun of by anybody who, kn who knows me well. I mean, like, what do you like, five bands? It's like, it's not quite that low. But I will <laughs> tear apart an entire catalog besides unreleased stuff before I'm even ready to go listen to something else because I just want to keep devouring what I have in front of me in this band that I'm loving or whatever it may be. Wow. And I try to sidestep that a bit and oh maybe i can listen to three bands at the same time but i just have this craving to wanting to keep listening to and taking in this thing that i'm loving so i get what you're saying because if somebody has music that's available i want to hear it Absolutely, now yeah an example that comes to mind i have two examples actually yes. and considering we've already discussed two of these bands physical graffiti is a great example of that album being a double album because Led Zeppelin up until that point had stuff that didn't make it on probably from Led Zeppelin 3, 4, and Houses of the Holy. Okay. And great songs, but they didn't fit within the context of the album. And they were like, this stuff is still really good. It should see the light of day. We can't you know, keep it in the can any longer, as, as I think Robert Plant referred to this material. And then they put it out as this big double album. And it's a phenomenal album, and it doesn't sound... I don't know how they accomplish this, but it doesn't sound like a hodgepodge of material over mm. the years. So that's an example of they knew the material was great, but for whatever reason, it just didn't mesh with yes. the sequencing on the other right. albums. Now, I don't want this to be blasphemous, but as much as I love the White Album, I do wonder, you know, if I didn't hear some of these bits and pieces, wouldn't it have been the end of the world? And could they have made a <laughs> phenomenal single LP? Absolutely. But I'll take anything I can get. You know, like Wild Honey Pie. If I never heard that song yeah. ever, I, don't, I, I wouldn't okay. lose any sleep over right. it. But yeah. I'm glad I heard it. Yeah. So 
it's a weird thing, you know? Man, I love how much you know about music and how young you are, and you're also good at the craft. It like, well, thank you very much. Because there's some people out there, it's just like, oh, that's so cool how much music you know. What do you play? I don't really play. Oh, I just don't. Oh, what do you do? I critique bands. Mm. Uh, what do you play? I don't really. You got, you're like the hat trick. You got all three things. When <laughs> well, you're writing you. these, the two recent songs, mm -hmm. Chaos in Motion and Talk, 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 it sounds like it could be from almost any decade when I listen to those songs, but it mm. also sounds very modern. Thank you. I'm really, hey, you're, we should talk more often about this stuff. Um, thank you. I always have a foot in both the past and either the present or the future. And what I mean by that is, we've already said that the Beatles are probably the greatest songwriters. And I will always look to those songs as one of many benchmarks in songwriting. It's just, it's undeniably great. Mention the Beach Boys as well. Yeah, yep. And I will always love that stuff. And I think that that stuff always needs to be respected and studied. And at the same time, I have a huge problem with bands who try to be of other decades, whether the way they dress, the way they look, the way they sound. I hate that. Interesting. Okay. You know, if something's already been perfected, don't do a, a worse version of it 40, mm. 50 years later. Mm. And I honestly think this is a shame because a lot of people have talent, but they're wasting it trying to be this immortal figure that's just it's not, not going to come again. It's never going to happen again. So why don't you take your time and talent that you've spent trying to become something that you're not? And I feel like, you know, I'm sure you can imagine a whole plethora of bands yes. that I'm referring I have two. to. Yes, yeah. okay. But it's, it's unfortunate because... Um, Considering the music we've been talking about, I don't want to say it's a dying breed, but the taste seems to be shifting further and further and further away from it. And it shouldn't be that when people think of classic rock or classic pop or whatever you want to call it, that it has to be a throwback. You know, th those songs were written because they're great, not just because they were recorded in the 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever you want to call it. The songs as pieces of music were oftentimes brilliant and well done, and there's no reason why that can't be adapted to our current time Yes. rather than trying to just replicate it. It's, it's, mo it's the most pointless thing to me. I mean, if you look at the uh, British Invasion, you didn't get people trying to rehash the blues as they heard it. They did something with it, and then it evolved, and it became this thing that spurred everything that we know is to be the, the greatest bands of all time. Right, right. But had they tried to just dress like and mimic, it, it wouldn't have gone anywhere. So now we're, in terms of actual bands who, who tip their hats to things that are more classic, it's, um, it's a little too impersonation for me. I encourage everybody. I wish I could play songs on the podcast. I can't do that. I tried to do it once, and I was flagged within like thirty seconds really? to, to listen to the couple songs mm. that we've been discussing that Elon has created. Because within the first fifteen seconds, they're mm. catchy, mm. and you listen the whole way through, and it makes me want more songs from you and mm. to repeat those songs over and over and over again. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, of course, talk man. talk talk is actually a great example of me. How, the the result of me writing that song was out of frustration for a couple of things in particular. One, this this idea we've been talking about where a lot of bands feel they have to try to mimic or replicate whatever it is that they love. Now, anybody who knows, I'm sure you picked up within three seconds, this guy likes Paul McCartney. 
it, I'm not hiding it. Right. But you're not yeah. going to say this sounds like <laughs> X song or Y song. It doesn't. No. And by 10 seconds, I've I've kind of changed the uh, turn the page. Yes. And then I cut and the, there's something to think about there. And then yes. another colossal frustration when we talk about producers, and I'm not speaking negatively of producers. Production is also something I've heavily gotten into since the pandemic. But the idea that so many songs these days are reliant on the production and quirky sounds and vocal manipulation and whatever it may be, as opposed to the song itself being well-written. I was like, I'm going to do a song, and I I love electronics and manipulating things in the computer and and having fun with it, but those two songs in particular, I was like, that's it. There's There's no trickery here. It's going to be... Drums, bass, guitar, piano, and everything that is production-wise is going to be coming from the instruments or my voice. So there are tons of harmonies, as you can tell. Or Talk, Talk, Talk has a bit of brass and strings. I did not play them myself. Those are done within the computer. But as far as the orchestration and voicing everything, I'm like, I'm going to be as traditional as I can be in terms of production. And that was a very deliberate choice I made when I was writing those two songs. What is the goal of the music you make now? Other than making great songs and you being satisfied with the tunes, is it to have as many, like, a zillion streams and play big shows? Is it to get on radio stations? Like, where do you see your music fitting in with the people that consume it? Oh, uh, you know what? I've never been able to solve the riddle of where does it fit. And, I mean... You I'm not t- saying it should. I'm yeah. just asking if... No, no, no. I mean, I, I wish it did, to be honest with you. I, I do and I don't because people get... Less risky as time goes by, and it's not. And this has been going on. You know this. Yeah. Is it the? You mean as us as individuals get older, we get less risky, or is it people that are creating in general? Get I think less it's risky? actually people in the industry because oh, right. the the barrier of genre has seen to be it's, it's been collapsing at a at a very yes. astounding rate, which I'm thrilled about. But I've had a conversation, for example, New Regime 2000. 13 or, or so, my third release, I had this, I'll, I'll leave the name out of it, but a very legendary guy in the industry who you know of, and I'm sure you've met, and we were having this meeting, and I'm like, okay, because it, to answer your question, I, I want the music to be as popular as possible. I think most people do, Yeah, and I'm not going to deny that. I would love for everybody to know the song, more importantly, to love it, and to have a billion streams and play shows. That's what everybody who wants to be a successful musician wants. So, going back to the story, this guy was telling me, he's like, so I burned your CD. This shows you the yeah. old school mentality. I mean, this was still 2013 or 14, so burning CDs at that point was already somewhat out of date. I'm like, okay, great. I, I appreciate that. He's like, so I, I like to listen to music when I drive. Like, great, me too. And he was saying, turn on the car, this music comes on, and uh, really like what I'm hearing. I'm like, what is this? I'm like, oh, it's the new regime. And in my mind, I'm like... Great, keep going. Yeah. It's like then the next day, turn on the car again, something else is on. And uh, what is it? It's a new regime. And I'm like, this conversation's going better than I could have ever imagined. He's like, you know what the problem with that is? And I'm like, of course there's a problem. God. What's the problem with the two songs you thought were great until you found out they were me? And he's like, it's not that I found out they were you. It's that I don't know what you are. One song is a little more rock. One song's a little more electronic. Something's a little poppy. And I'm like... Like, okay, and he's like, you need to figure out what you are. And I'm like, I'm all of these things. I mean, it's not like you just 
moved here from Iowa and it's yeah. your first day in the yeah. goddamn business. You've been yeah. a professional since you were 10 years old. Not only that, I mean, I mean, the luxury of hindsight of, you know, your dad saying, here's the entire Beatles catalog. I, I'm beating a dead horse with the Beatles, but you know what? You get where I'm coming from. You're an enthusiast, so I feel okay about it. Yeah. But you're, uh, you know, I wasn't there waiting for every album to slowly evolve. I saw the evolution within hours. I can listen, I can see the whole thing. So the fact that my favorites, whether it be the Beatles, whether it be, you know, Depeche Mode made huge changes within a couple of years yes. from a very, very pop and slightly becoming edgier to now this is dark and I love it. It's one of my favorites as well. There's I been bands say. that started super, super dark when they mm -hmm. were 21 because they went through a bunch of S in their life. Mm -hmm. And when they were 31, mm -hmm. yeah, this is a little more dancey now. Yeah. I've seen that as or, well. Or the complete opposite. And they're For the sure. same right. band. You can love it. And I would, Queen is the finest example of variety beyond what anybody knew possible. The fact that you can have an album that has another one bites the dust and crazy little thing called love. <laughs> Which one's like 50s Elvis-inspired rock, right. and one is like wannabe funk disco. They don't belong on the same album, but the thing that makes it work is the band. I'm not comparing myself to Queen, of course. <laughs> but what I'm saying is as a music fan, right. variety is one of the most important things to me. So for a guy, anybody, to tell me, what are you? It's like, who cares what I am? It's good. It's well-written. Do you like it or do you not like it? You told me you like it, but you have a problem that you don't know what box it belongs in. That sounds like a lazy mother effing statement by that person. I, I completely agree, and that could have been letting me down easily for all I know. But all I know is That's that having lazy. that conversation, yeah. and it wasn't the first time I'd heard it. And But have times changed in 2021, 2022, do you think, if you went in and you're speaking to someone of that level in the business? I, I would say so, but I think uh, a huge problem not to be as i mean yeah i'm pretty pessimistic but just being realistic i think data is probably the biggest thing to ruin music in the last is since the streaming generation has started so is it be so people the higher ups in the industry mm -hmm. are using more of analytics than instincts to get music Absolutely. out there you can have okay gotcha you can have the greatest band on the planet submit music send a link Whatever it may be, email some songs, and it could literally be the greatest thing. If you're unheard of, if, yeah, if you're unheard of, you don't have enough followers, you don't have enough streams, it doesn't matter. You can get the most ridiculous, want to smash your head against the wall thing that's trending on TikTok, and that will get signed within months. And they will they will right. not drag their feet on it. And it's it's appalling, but it's just insane to me how how short-term the mindset has, has become. Because it's like, yeah, we get more things that, that stream really well, but you're not going to get a legacy act that's making your label money in 50 years off of a remaster. It's just not going to happen. Do you think that somebody who has one song that's doing great on TikTok or maybe on Spotify, it's at like 5 million streams, one of their songs, do you think that equals ticket sales? Like, It doesn't. It doesn't. And what's phenomenal is that you can have people who have hundreds of millions of streams okay. and can't fill a thousand cap venue. Wow. Yeah. It's it's nuts. And the, 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 the numbers only pertain to the attention span of, I want to listen to this right now. Maybe I'll put it on a playlist. I'll probably forget about it. That's where the numbers go. But how does that person who maybe streamed your song one time 
or three times know that you're on tour, you're coming to their city? How do they know that they even like more than the one song of yours? I mean, it's right. one thing to sit down and hit play. It's one thing to commit to buying a ticket, going to a venue, making a night out of it. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Of course it does. But the numbers do not directly translate from streaming to filling venues. And I know that for a fact. One of the coolest things that I experienced at K-Rock, mm -hmm. from the time I started there, and I don't know exactly what year I stopped hearing it, mm -hmm. was when a song, a new song would come in, mm -hmm. and Kevin Weatherly, who was program director, and he said, mm -hmm. love him. There's a huge compliment. He would immediately ask the label for, give us a second song. Mm -hmm. He's like this one song because he was thinking of the future for this band mm -hmm. already. That's what, and I, I always that thought that was mm -hmm. cool as hell. That's fantastic. And, yeah. Here's a question for you. Yeah. Did you feel, and I mean this in a good way, did you feel a sense of positive power being able to say, I can play this and this can change the lives of said artist? I never thought it as that way, but I thought that my enthusiasm and the mm. way that I present a new band and a new song that I love mm. is going to inspire those listening and get them as excited as mm. I am. And maybe I can be a 0.0001%. Mm. Uh, I helped this band in some sort mm. of way. Yeah. I, that part, but never like this could change. I never thought of it like that. It was more about, I want to get this, the audience so happy right now mm. because I'm excited. Yeah. I was listening to this thing. No one knows of it yet. I mm. get to press play and I get to introduce it in my own style. Which is great. I, you know, I, I could be wrong, but I, I'm not sure if that happens anymore, which is unfortunate. And right. a good example, I mean, I'll watch a documentary about anything, but I was watching this the new series of stuff on HBO, and I saw the Alanis Morissette documentary. I watched that, which too. Which was great. So good. And, so uh, good. And Lisa Warden's bitten it. Yes. All, all very fun to watch, but I'm like, wow, somebody's saying, I really like this. I'm going to play it, and then that absolutely contributing to the launching of one of the biggest things of the decade. They walked the CD right into the studio, mm -hmm. and that happened to me, not with Alanis, mm -hmm. with so many bands mm -hmm. over the years where I'd be on in the afternoon, Lisa or Kevin would walk in and say, play this at 420 today. Mm -hmm. What is this? It's blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Press play. And next thing you know, it's like, oh, wow, this band is, this is getting mm -hmm. huge. Sometimes it would be a world premiere from a band people already knew. Mm -hmm. But that was so exciting. It, it feels exciting from here looking back, thinking, God, I wish it was that way now. But the landscape is constantly changing, and it's, it's really hard to put your finger on. Well, let me throw this theory at you, and maybe mm -hmm. it's a, a truth. Yep. Do radio stations that are considered modern rock radio stations play so much familiar music like Under the Bridge from the Chili Peppers, a popular Green Day song? These are bands I love, by the way. I could go three lifetimes without <laughs> listening to the songs that you're thinking of right now. Okay. Yes. They're being played because there's so much out there to distract you that you need the most familiar piece of music possible when someone turns on your station, mm -hmm. which is why there's not as many new bands on the radio. Yeah, it's just a silly thing because now everyone has every song they've ever loved in their pocket. <laughs> so they don't need to catch it on the radio. It, that's what I don't understand. And it's it's very much the, uh, the short-sighted mentality, in my opinion. Not that I have the answers, but there's no other way to think about it. How When are you going to break something on radio? if it's not even making up 1% of what you're playing. 
And uh, obviously, it's it's far more intricate than more people think. You have ads to deal with. And I believe it, yeah. And I don't really, hmm. listen, I'm just throwing theories yeah. and ideas but and you, you, that sort of thing. And I like radio. I like hmm. being live. I like the excitement. But I do wish there was some more variety going on. I think a lot of executives sell the audience short. I, I completely agree with you, and I'm very happy to hear you say that. Yeah, it's, um, it's really tough. And what, what I meant... By the short-sightedness, is like, yes, you have ads to keep up with. You have listenership that you just, you're literally watching a graph, I'd imagine, or at least getting some sort of metric to make sure that things are going well. And maybe that metric would take a downward trend by playing a bunch of new music, but that's a short-term thing. It might bump up higher than it's ever been if you're playing something that maybe people don't know where they can get it immediately. But yes, anybody can listen to anything. They don't need to catch it on the radio in traffic on the way to work. One of the problems, and I, I believe that some radio stations over the last few years that played some new music were not playing the right new music. Mm -hmm. That bothers me a little bit. Yeah. And some of the older music that's being played, it's not the right older music. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, no offense to There She Goes by the Laws, mm -hmm. but come on, this is an alternative rock station. Give me mm -hmm. something that, like, we loved and, like, wanted to maybe have a sip of Jack Daniels to in 2006, 7, mm -hmm. 8, 9. I, the Laws from all those years ago, this is what you're playing in Semi-Sonic, mm -hmm. uh, Closing Time. Yeah. Again, yeah. great, well-written songs, all the love <laughs> in the world, but come yeah. on, man. Yeah. I mean, do I, I hope I don't sound like Get Off My Lawn. I just, like, I want to be shaken around when I'm listening to radio by the announcer and by mm -hmm. the songs coming through. You're getting me all fired up right now. Good, good. <laughs> and you're completely right because what if you have the access to the music instantaneously and you don't need the radio to listen to that, what is the radio bringing to the table that you can't get from Spotify? Okay, well, I know what it should be bringing. There you go. Yes. But if it's literally a matter of we're playing songs that people know and like, they already have the songs. They don't need, yeah. and when I say you, I'm not talking about you personally. Figuratively, they don't need you to play them. The radio doesn't need to. Like, I want to hear White Stripe Seven Nation Army on the radio. Mm. Don't get me wrong. I mm. want to hear that. Mm. And I, I wouldn't mind hearing Toxicity from System. Mm. And then I want to hear a Nine Inch Nails. And then I want a brand new band mm. that sounds like they should be on an alternative rock station, mm. not on the Top 40 station. Yeah. There you They're go. out there. Mm. We're not looking in the right places to I, get them on. I couldn't agree with you more. God damn yeah. it all. Yeah. Jeez, yeah. Louise. <laughs> Where, what else do you want to talk about? Anything. I've got all day, man. You know what I think about after the discussion we just had? Tell me. In Goodwill Hunting, when Matt Damon walks into Robin Williams, like, you got all these books on the walls. You mm. like those? Yeah, the, the wrong effing books. Mm. It's like, you got all these songs. You're playing the wrong effing songs right yeah. now. That's what I think. And there's never been more of it. It's far more competitive than it's ever been. And I think that's why radio would could be far more influential than it is. And yeah. I love radio. Mm. And by the way, I just want to be clear with everybody. I've never been in management in radio. Mm. I'm just a dumb host that was hey, on the radio. Short. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously. That I'm a guy that wears a dumb sweater now. Like Larry David had the same sweater on Curb Your Enthusiasm yeah. the other night. You enjoy the new season? Yes. Yeah, How good. about you? I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I fantasize about not being him, but like going out to lunch all the time uh -huh. and then playing golf right after with your friends. Yeah. And like he's driving around and like no one's getting wasted. It's like, I just have one. It's like just very calm and like sweaters and mm. comfortable pants. Mm. I just really enjoy it. So two things come to mind. <laughs> one is 
I mean, all you have to do is create something as good as Seinfeld to kind of get the ball rolling <laughs> for that kind of lifestyle. Okay, right. But then, <laughs> but then um, this podcast yeah. is not going to lead me there. Well, actually, this is a question <laughs> I had for you. How? Tell me more people than just myself understand what tuna on toast is. It's you and one other person that got it right away. Yeah, right away. That's even fantastic. When I saw it, I'm like, nothing ever works out for me with tuna on toast. That's yes, great. That's that's exactly one of my it. favorite Seinfeld episodes. The opposite. Oh yeah, yeah, so good. One of the best. But honestly, the um, back in the DVD days. I had Seinfeld, my brother, one of my brothers and I were very big fans, and he got the DVDs, I got some of the DVDs, watched the bonus footage, and they talk about the rise of that show, how it was a very slow build, and just to think that if there wasn't somebody passionate at NBC about Seinfeld, and without meeting those metrics within two seasons, they could have pulled the plug on what is very much revered as the greatest sitcom of all time. Right. And think about how often that happens now where it's like most bands, so many bands, they talk about the the mystical fourth album as being the one. (laughs) Can you imagine getting to a fourth album today without tremendous success on the first one? And I remember bands saying, okay, we're already thinking our third single needs to be the ballad on the album. Uh Like for this, for rock bands. Yeah, assuming you're getting to a third single. Yeah, well, everyone did. They're like, so we've already planned our third song's going to be the mellow track. Yeah. And then the first two are going to be this. Man, I love Curb. I love everybody on there. Yeah. Um, your favorite TV shows of all time are, is it like more one hour scripted shows or do you like scripted comedy shows? Ooh, um, I think I'm a bit all over the place. Seinfeld is definitely one of the favorites. I love Curb. Just that whole world is yeah, right up my alley. <laughs> uh, in terms of more serious stuff, I mean, I thought Dexter was phenomenal. I'm enjoying the new Dexter I'm tremendously. I, they're picking up where they left off a while ago, right? Which is nice. And but the first episode mm. of the new season, yeah. six point three out of ten. Uh-huh. And then the next few, 7.5, 8.8. Now it's like 9.8. It's so good. So good. Uh, Breaking Bad was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, but back into comedy, I I shouldn't have procrastinated on this, but Ted Lasso was fantastic. Fantastic, yeah. All over the place, man. I just started watching The Servant on Apple. Apple's been putting out some good stuff. I like The Morning Show was good. Yeah, I, I haven't seen that, but I've heard great things. Really good. Great So acting. I'm all over the place, but I'm also a, a very big procrastinator because... Going back to this obsessive personality of mine, if I like a show, I can't stop watching it. I binge <laughs> like no other, and I have to complete it. I can't. Do you do it solo or with your wife? Well, that's the thing. I mean, with all due respect to my lovely wife, she can't binge like I can binge. Okay. So <laughs> it's probably for, for my own good, but she'll be like, okay, I'm not watching anymore. And I'm like, all oh, right, you're probably right. And then we'll stop. Left to my own devices, I would just... You go, go it all. Go, go. Yeah, stop. Here's an under, well, appreciated at the time, but I believe underrated in 2021. Mm. I think there are maybe nine or 10 seasons. Frasier. Hey, you can't. Frasier is awesome. Like, I've actually, one of my brothers has said, I really think you'd like Frasier. And I just can't believe how incredible Kelsey Grammer's career has been. <laughs> I mean, to be on Cheers and then that right. have that spin off and yes. then whatever the hell, like, God, you, amazing. Uh, I hate Some when people, people just say can't fail. Like, Ted Danson? Yeah. Go, Ted, Ted Danson? Danson. Yeah. He, the guy is so, <laughs> you're not Ted Danson. Yeah. He's got talent, you don't. I want the Ted Danson playing. Yeah. No, and he's in Curb Enthusiasm. How about them bringing Ted Danson, just mentioning him in Seinfeld, yeah. and now he's great in it's, Curb. It's, he's fantastic. His um, 
season three, Chet's shirt is one of my favorite episodes <laughs> with Ted Danson. That's, I mean, I'm telling you, man, I go deep. What I, about I, the Ted Danson sandwich? He wants great. a dairy. I got the white fish. You got the turkey. Sable. That's an island. Sable. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, good. good yeah. All right. Couple more things here. Did you ever have to audition for the bands you're in where you had to go in a room and someone watched you and said, okay, you're good enough? Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, Nine Inch Nails, definitely. You did? Yeah. Although it was, a, it was a sort of leg up audition. I was very fortunate in the fact that, now keep in mind, this period of my life that I talk about has been severely tainted by a band I played with at the time. So I'll leave that out. Yeah, we'll but, leave that out. That's but fine. that band was performing just before Nine Inch Nails at the Reading and Leeds festivals in England, which, you know, are Huge. almost the pinnacle of festival season over there. Yes. We were playing right before Nine Inch Nails, and a good friend of mine uh, and business partner, actually, I co-own a drum company. Right, yes. And uh, he was teching for, for Nine Inch Nails, had been teching for a couple of years. And I don't know if he persuaded Trent or if Trent happened to notice me because the main stage and the dressing rooms are right next to each other practically at least they were then and he watched me play and a year later I got an email from him saying hey I'm in need of a drummer I saw that I I watched you play at Reading last year and thought it was exciting are you interested and of course I was (laughs) and I also this is uh, back in 2007-ish, eight, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the, the Reading Leeds that he saw me play at was 2007. So fast forward maybe a year later, probably a bit less, to 2008. I did see that Josh, uh, Josh Fries, who's a very well-known drummer, who was playing with Nails at the time, had announced that he was leaving at the end of the tour they were on, which was Lights in the Sky. And me having my friend Jeremy, who's a drum tech, I'm like, we got to find a way to make this work. Like, send me some live tracks i'll play drums to it i actually filmed myself playing drums on a couple of things i don't even know if he saw it i'd imagine he did but uh, then i got this email from trent saying trent from nine nails here i was very excited by it that's how he talks too. trent from nine inch nails i have a musical drop from him where he said trent from nine inch nails here listen to striker so he sends you the email then what happens like yes absolutely tell me when where what songs and basically he gave me a list of eight songs learn them Went to the East Coast, I want to say New Hampshire. They were on tour at the time, Lights in the Sky tour, and I basically auditioned at Soundcheck in an empty arena. Did you do all eight songs he wanted you to I know? actually had the most terrifying moment of my life that I've only recently become more comfortable talking about. Okay. And I'll tell you this, you'll enjoy this. Yes. Uh, so, Please. <laughs> so, just before the day I was supposed to fly out to audition for Nine Inch Nails, we've already established that uh, I'm obsessive and I... Um, you can imagine I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I really like to put in my effort. Went to the doctor for something unrelated, just like a routine checkup. The doctor went through my charts and said, you know, you've never had a blood test, have you? you never had blood drawn. I'm like, no, I haven't. And the doctor was like, well, I, I don't think I'd feel like a good doctor if we didn't at least just do a basic panel, make sure you're fine. I'm sure everything's fine. But, you know, you're, you're 19 or 20. You never had blood drawn. I'm like, okay, fine. Draws the blood, and you know how it goes. They say, kind of stay off your arm, take it easy. Right. And then, uh, you know, of oh. course, I didn't do that. I played drums all day long. Yes. Then, you know, flying does stuff to your circulation. In the al- high altitude, yeah. right? So I do that. <laughs> then I go to a freezing cold arena, and I'm a very confident drummer. I, I put my heart and soul, my body into it. So I just go hit the ground running in this freezing place, and I'm not exaggerating. Exaggerating, sorry. When I say that I looked at my left arm and it was visibly swollen. 
by like, it looked like some Popeye arm or something. It freaked me out. It terrified me. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? And I got like three, four songs into it. It hadn't affected my playing, but I was about to get to a point where I couldn't hold a drumstick. Oh, And this had never God. happened in my life. Right. So I'm like, biggest opportunity I've ever had. Weirdest thing that has ever happened to me happening at the same time. And All as a result of the getting the blood? It took me a really long time to put these pieces together. Okay. But I'm like, what happened? And I need to make sure it never <laughs> happens again. And it wasn't just the, the getting the blood drawn. It was the, the whole combination of just being very physical and playing and practicing my ass off when I should have just been relaxing my arm than the flight. And then, you know, it's not like I sat there stretching up and warming up like uh, I was about to play a show, but I definitely played like I was in front of 20,000 people giving it my all. Right, right. And it was just this horrible combination of things. And I recall thinking, I'm going to make the biggest risk, but I'm just going to, I have to take this risk. And I went to Trent, and he was very, very uh, complimentary. I mean, you could tell that he was enjoying it. And What's he doing you said it's during sound check. Oh, but we is just he singing. We, oh, we just played. Yeah. So he's singing we're, Nine Inch Nails song. You're playing this, and you're playing like it's a full we're, crowd. Of we're course. on stage. The, okay. The whole band, and we're just Damn. it's like a rehearsal. We're just kind of okay. all looking at each other, or everyone's facing the drums. Yeah. And we're just going at it. And I can tell <laughs> he was enthusiastic. I was enthusiastic. Did you have long like, hair? Oh the, yeah. Okay. I'm like, yeah. Th- this is. I'm like, there's no way. You wear a shirt when you did that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a long time since I played with that shirt. Um, but, um, yeah, so then this thing happened to my arm and I'm thinking to myself, this is probably going to start affecting my playing. And if I keep my mouth shut and all of a sudden I start playing poorly, (laughs) that's not a good look. Right. So I went to Trent and I, I took the risk and thank God it paid off. But I just told him, I explained the situation. Has this ever happened to you before? I'm like, never. I'm I'm baffled. And I'm like, I will keep going until my arm either explodes or falls off. You said that. Yeah. I'm like, I just want you to know in case it affects my playing because we're playing great. And he's like, thanks for telling me. Don't worry about it. Let me talk to the guys. And I'm like, did I just blow it? Did I just make a horrific mistake in being honest? Well, obviously I didn't, but he came back to me. He's like, look, we all loved your playing. If you're not doing anything tomorrow, why don't we just delay your flight a day, come with us to the next city, and we'll just finish off the rest of the songs. And I'm like, yes. They wanted more of an audition? Absolutely. They well, because wanted- I had eight, and I probably made it through four of them. And I'm like, he wanted to do four more yeah. with you. Yeah, I'm like, I, I, well, that's, that's what I'd learned. I was ready. I was right. prepared. And I'm like, yes, absolutely. Finish those four songs. Uh, then he said, we'd be honored to have you in the band. And I've been with the band ever since. But that when moment. When was your first show, though, after he said we'd be honored to have you? First show was February of the following year. Okay. So I maybe audition November, I want to say. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you. Wow. Thank you. But it's crazy. It was it was fantastic. I mean, I've it sounds crazy to say, but I, I've been the, the longest standing drummer. I mean anybody who knows Nine Inch Nails knows that there have been quite a few people in and out of that door. Yeah. Yeah. And it's insane to me that I've been with the band for thirteen years now, or whatever it may be. I remember our first rehearsals. This is before Jane's Addiction and Nine Inch Nails went out on the Ninja Tour, which you probably saw yeah, in 09. Yep. Oh, yeah. Trent, I think, was producing some new material of theirs, and we finished rehearsals, and it's like, hey, so who's going to come to the, the Jane's show? They're playing somewhere in downtown LA, I think it was. They're like, yeah, I'll go, I'll go. And then it gets to me. I was like, I don't think I can get in. I wasn't 21 <laughs> yet, and I was, I was 20 at the time. Oh, my God. And 
what's funny now is that anybody who looks me up on YouTube very quickly finds my 21st birthday, which was a, a surprise from the band on stage in Paris. Strippers, cake, humiliation. Wow. And it's all there for everyone to see. Man. Yeah. Less than tw 21 years old, getting yeah. to be the drummer. Mm. You earned it. In Thank nine you. inch nails. But it, it wow. was, I had, the, I mean, I, I was of course aware of the caliber of Trent and the band and, and the honor it was to be invited into such a band and at such a young age. I mean, that's taking a risk. I've dealt with plenty of 20 year olds who are just awful and don't have the remotest sense of professionalism. And him and I are actually very similar and we get along great. But when I got into the first rehearsals, into those first rehearsals, and I saw him do his thing and heard the band play as we played, I had a very distinct feeling of this is the type of organization that I've wanted to be in. Because even though I was 20, I'd been playing in bands for 12 years at that point. Right. It wasn't new to me. And in various bands. And bands and, that were signed to labels in case people don't know that. And yeah. it didn't, sometimes it didn't go yeah. great. That ended, but all I learned, for a I learned the, uh, the get signed to a major and drop eight months later tragedy very early on in life. Wow. Uh, 16 years old. That was my first midlife crisis. I'll tell you about <laughs> that story if you want. But yeah, I just remember at that first Nine Inch Nails rehearsal. And mind you pull you, that mic closer. Go ahead. Mind closer. you, this is walking into a room having to know 50-some songs. This is not just, here's the set and this is what we're going to do. This is a, a lot of work. It was a lot of fun. But I just had that distinct feeling of this is the type of organization I've wanted to be in. Everybody that's wants this cool, to be great. Man. Everyone wants to put in the effort. Everyone does put in the effort. And that's why this band is so good, especially that's, live. Sounds like a, like Kobe Bryant drafted at a high school going to the Lakers. And no, and you oh. go from like, you got some teammates in high school who have the eye of the tiger, but mm. some are just, yeah, we're going to do our thing. Mm. Um, and then you go to the Lakers and it's like, that was, Kobe was made for that. Mm. And it sounds like, you had the eye of the tiger and the focus and determination as a teen. And this is not a knock on anyone 16 to 20 years old who doesn't mm. have it. It's like your brain is going a million. You don't even know what you want to be or who you are at that point. But mm. you knew what you wanted to do. I did. I mean, and that's a result of, A, most importantly, having extremely supportive parents who not once, at least to my knowledge, kind of batted an eyelash to me pursuing music professionally but made me very aware, and I'm, I'm still talking single digits here, before I was 10 years old, if this is what you want to do, it's not all fun and games. It's work, it's this, it's that, and that really shaped the way I perceived everything as everything being an opportunity to always do the best I could do. One thing leads to another, which is something I'm still learning to this day, because regardless of how comfortable I may be here having a conversation with you, I'm yeah. definitely filed in the introvert category. Mm. But learning all these things... Definitely helped. And then, of course, the experience of having been in bands for 12 years before getting an opportunity of that magnitude, it kind of just worked. But I'm going to botch the quote, but the thing about luck being uh, preparation and opportunity meeting each other is yes. very true. And uh, that proved to be my experience. Did you need to ask permission or at least let Trent and the guys know that Hey, I may uh, be doing something with Tom DeLonge and his band. No, I actually, I was in Nine Inch Nails first, so I didn't join Angels till... No, no, I know, but did you talk to Trent about maybe working with Tom? Oh, no, um, good question. But no, because, I mean, it's no mystery. Trent is very, I mean, Nine Inch Nails is very much Trent. 
And especially at that time, there was a bit of a break that was known about and nobody knew how long that break was going to be because if we if we go back to 09, finishing that tour, I think the following year was when Trent Atticus did The Social Network, being their first foray Whew. into film scoring. Aye, aye, aye. And it so wasn't good. And it wasn't until mid-2013 that Nine Inch Nails got back together to play and start touring again. So there was a pretty sizable gap in that time. And within my first run with Nine Inch Nails and then 2013, the, the whole cycle that supported the Hesitation Marks tour, there was Angels and Airwaves, which I joined in 2011 or 12. And then... The Dreamwalker and Life Forms you've yeah, done with them. Yeah. Uh, Life Forms being recent. Right, yeah. yeah. Dr- Dreamwalker was the first album that we did together. And then also within that window... I had a uh, excuse me a very brief stint with with Paramore, and that was meant to be just oh, right. um, playing on their album because they didn't have a drummer at the time. Played on the album Justin Mel Johnson, who's a great bass player and had phenomenal success as a producer, who I knew from Nine Inch Nails, was producing them. Asked me to play. We all got along so well that they asked if I was willing to tour. And of course, in the back of my mind, I knew that Nine Inch Nails was going to be gearing up soon. And I had a nice conversation where I didn't want to let the cat out of the bag, but I was like, thank you. I do have this thing coming up that I can't really talk about, but I totally get you guys wanting to have your drummer for the whole cycle. I mean, it doesn't make sense to have me going for a couple of weeks or a month or whatever. Right. And they're like, actually, we'd love to have you as long as you can play with us. And if you don't mind, maybe you can watch some of the auditions and give us your opinions of other drummers. And it was a great time playing with that band. And uh, uh, shockingly, <laughs> the first time I played in a band with people my age or younger. The only time, actually. Did they have the same, did they operate the way you did mentally in terms of this We this is an operation, this is a business, we're having mm. fun, creative mm. at the same time? Did it feel that? Yes, but but. Differently in the sense that I have been a part of big things. They were and are the big thing. You know, Haley is, I'm not knocking anything else in in Paramore, but Paramore is her accomplishment and it's all their accomplishment. Whereas Nine Inch Nails is Trent's accomplishment. Angels is, is Tom's and I'm fortunate to be a part of it and bring something to the table there, of course. But I never feel like anything is mine but I'm very appreciative of being a part of it. You know, like a lot of people, they congratulate me for the uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing with Nine Inch Nails, yes. which is, yes. it's a baffling thing for me. It's one of those like, when I'm older one day, I'm going to be, I want to be in the Hall of Fame like my heroes. But doing it at 32 was a shock. But when people congratulate me, I probably seem to have this cloak of false modesty. And it isn't false modesty. It's just like, I didn't do anything to put that band in the Hall of Fame. If I wasn't in that band, Nine Inch Nails would still be in the Hall of Fame. So once again, I'm appreciative of it. Yeah. And it's an honor. And I know Trent personally, as well as management, fought for having additional individuals, aside from Trent, uh, inducted in the Hall of Fame. So it's it's an amazing thing. But I can't possibly have the same level of pride that he would, for example. Gotcha. So Makes it's an sense. interesting thing dealing with people who are your age and they have achieved what they've achieved within their own right. And it was, it was a great time. But you could tell that they didn't take it for granted. They still worked hard. They did a lot. And my experience, great to hear my experience working up to nine inch nails was either people who were terribly uh, unprofessional or took it for granted. And that's why I taught myself to sing and 
did solo music. Swear to God. Wow. Because yeah. of that. I was so sick of dealing with bands who would take months and months and months to record or somebody couldn't get off the couch to make it to rehearsal on time or whatever it was. All these things drove me nuts. And I'm at this point, 18, 19 years old, I was like, you know, I've dedicated, this is a funny thing to say, but I've dedicated over half my life at that point to playing music and learning new instruments and getting good at them. And I thought, what is the point of doing all of this if I can't do the most important thing, which is sing? And that to me was the missing piece of independence, autonomy, and being able to write exactly what I wanted to write. And it was a result of frustration with dealing with other people. Well, I hope, again, I've mentioned this a couple of times, people listen to your music, not just the thank two you. most recent songs, but go back and I've got to more listen coming to out. stuff. You I've do. got more coming out, but yeah, thank you. Okay. I, I appreciate that. Of course. Um, it seems like Tom DeLonge appreciates you for more than just your skills as a drummer, but because you can I'm write a damn song. As well. I'm <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Is there uh, something there where he's you're with him because you can do more than drum? You can write that. That's a hundred percent correct, and that's cool, man. It is. It is, and and the reason why I know this is Tom and I had not met until we talked about me joining Angels and Airwaves. It's not like we were friends and there was a vacancy open in the. You know, the, the drummer's thrown. Both from San Diego, of course. A lot of people know Blink and Blink Affiliates because it's a giant band. Right. And we had a couple mutual friends. I actually knew Tom's sister before I knew him. His sister Carrie, she's lovely. But somebody said, hey, would Alon be interested in maybe joining Angels or talking to Tom? This was a conversation that was had with my oldest brother who actually produces Angels. Aaron Rubin. Yeah. He produces Angels. He produced... Um, co-produced all of my new regime stuff, but he engineered, mixed it. And yeah, ever since I've joined Angels, he's he's become a very integral part of that world. In fact, him and Tom work more closely and more often than Tom and I do because I live in LA now and, and have done for a couple of years. But anyway, I digress. Tom and I get on the phone. We start talking. You know, Tom doesn't mince his words and he's very passionate. And if he wants something, he just goes for it. Yeah. So we get on the phone very quickly. And I remember... The conversation getting to a point where I said, hey, I don't want you to think that just because I have my own solo music where I write, play, and sing everything that I'm going to come into this band and expect to start writing songs or picking up the guitar. He said, no, 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 that's exactly what I want. He's like, I feel like I need to kind of change things up a little bit. I've, I've done a lot of similar things musically over the years, and I want somebody else who can either change things up or point me in a different direction. And that's what I'm looking for. He's like, I can get anybody to, to play drums well, but I don't want that anymore. And it's funny because for a lot of that writing, he would say, like, why don't you go try something like crazy on the drums? I'm like, this song doesn't need something crazy. <laughs> like this song needs a, a different kind of riff or a different kind of synth sequence or something. Yeah. And it took him a long time to kind of realize that because I see music as far more than what the drums are doing. And I'm not saying I'm not, saying that it's like a backhanded statement to to anybody he's he's worked with in the past. But when you play one instrument and you're a part of a band, you are generally thinking, what's the most I can possibly do within this song? And I don't see music that way because mm. I'm not going to do more than the drums need just so That's that I It's a selfless can... thing, it sounds like, as an artist to yeah. do that. Well, it's just like I don't need to do something fancy. If I do something fancy, it's not going to make this verse any better. In fact, it might make it worse. Mm. And of course, there are complexities that do improve things or, or or make things unique, but so many things are ruined by a lack of taste. So yeah, I love coming up with a beat or doing something fun or something intricate, 
but that's not where my mind goes. I will think, well, what's the bass doing? What should the bass be doing? If I do this, that'll kind of open up a pocket for this second guitar part over here. And that's the way I'm seeing music. Wow. And he had to get used to the fact that I wasn't always just leaping to the drums to go do stuff. I'm like, there's so much more that we can do to improve the song than coming up with a weird, tricky little hi-hat pattern or yeah. something. So, and we, we, we found the best way to work together. We're very, I've said this many times, but we're, <laughs> and he admits to it as well. We're as polar opposite as you could be musically, right? In terms of what we like, in terms of, of how we play. Yeah. We're just two very different people. And as a result of that, there was, it was almost like we had to find a new common language to communicate with in terms of music. Because he'd be like, yeah, I have this thing. kind of sounds like Pink Floyd. I'm like, well, this, this should be interesting. <laughs> and then he'd play it, and it sounds nothing like Pink Floyd. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, how, on what planet does this remind you of Pink Floyd? He's like, well, it just kind of gives me that vibe. And I'm like, oh, okay. So he doesn't look at music in terms of chords and melody. I mean, yes, we all look at vibe. Yeah. But he's like, it makes this thing that I'm doing makes me feel like I'm floating the way comfortably numb makes me feel like I'm floating. Wow. I'm, like, I'm like, yeah, but, that, but, I'm like, but that's only a you thing. That's something that nobody else can possibly understand. I mean, there's a song that we just started playing on this last tour that was one of the first, if not the first, that we worked on together on the Dreamwalker, a song called Tunnels. Okay, yes. For the longest song, you know what the working title for that was? What? what? The Adele song. Tell me how that <laughs> sounds like Adele. I have no idea. He's like, yeah, there's this rad Adele song that just kind of starts with like a stomp. And I think it was, um, rumor has it, uh, it wasn't a single, but it was on on. I know 21. Adele is the most famous, uh, like a uh, Beyonce uh, level. Yeah. I don't really know Adele songs. No, no, I'm sorry. But, but I, th I think the song was rumor has it. It kind of starts with this stomp. Okay. And all Tom had in his mind was this that stomp. And that's why there's just nothing but a bass drum going through like the first half of it. But because of that stomp and because it reminded him of Adele or because that's yeah. what he was trying to do, that song was referred to as the Adele song for months. And that's one of those things that that only makes sense in his mind. So once I figured out how to decipher that code and learn how to work, we did start getting a lot of material together. And we have a very sort of streamlined way of working. And considering him and Aaron are in San Diego and I'm up in L.A., we kind of stumbled across the perfect way to work in a pandemic before the pandemic hit. So it didn't really slow us down. And we were able to do what I would say is probably the best Angels album, which is Life Forms. It's a great, great album. Tom sat in the seat the mm. year since. Tom came over to the house yeah, here yeah. before. I love that you're yeah. here as well. Thank you. Thanks All right. We've been going, oh my God, we're like an hour and 10 minutes in. So in one sentence, give Tom DeLong a compliment that we may not know something about him. Like, this is, um, you know, because any time I think of Tom, my mind just goes to humor, whether expecting him to say something funny or me needing to say something funny to make him laugh. But if we're trying to go for something heartfelt, uh, I'm not sure what to do. You really, As you can see, I'm not great at being put on the spot. Uh, <laughs> no, that's not true at all. Uh, you're uh, wonderful at it. Well, when people, so you're saying that Tom DeLonge is not a good person. Is that <laughs> what you're saying because you can't think of anything? Honestly, what my mind went to yeah. was Tom DeLonge has a beautiful body. But that's a horrible <laughs> thing to say. But no, that, that's just, um, he has the most delightfully stiff nipples that will poke through any shirt, regardless of, of the temperature. Thin shirts he yep. wears. <laughs> so you thin notice too. Soft shirts. <laughs> like, babies should see, be swaddled in those shirts. See, that's how soft they are. This is not something that I would ever tell nor joke about <laughs> any other human being. Right. But 
with Tom. You become a friend of Tom's, you tour with the guy, and you kind of just snap into a different frame of mind when you're around him. And it's probably not a good thing because that means you just have a bunch of grown adults with the worst humor yeah. <laughs> telling the worst <laughs> jokes, but everybody's laughing at it. So, yeah. No, but Tom's a, Tom's a very good guy. And jokes aside, I do commend his his passion and his confidence in pursuing whatever it may be. It's not... I would find it to be almost nearly impossible to leave a band as big as Blink. Even right. a band half that size. Yes. You know, if you're in a position where you're making a fantastic living playing songs in front of people who love them. I mean, I've been to, be, before knowing Tom, I've been at a festival waiting to play and the crowd will play, break out into singing all the small things. And in my mind, I'm like, of all songs, why are you singing <laughs> this one? But it's it's struck a chord with multiple generations at this point. Yeah. And yeah. having the balls to do that, well, I mean, I'm not saying he should or shouldn't have, but it's a tough thing to do. And it's not like he did it and didn't pursue other things. Everything he's, the passion, you have to have passion to talk that much about aliens and pursue that much about what else is out there. And yeah. I'm not saying that to be funny. He's done a tremendous amount of work he's for responsible it and for with some it. of the documents and footage being released yeah why <laughs> people talk to him i honestly don't know i'm, I'm glad that they do i'm well, glad it's they, they love do. all the small things exactly they want to meet know, the guy that's one third of that operation the pentagon then. cannot get enough of in another state but it's crazy and you have to have passion and a level of confidence where you just won't stop. And doing that, as well as, like I said, he's making his directorial debut. I'm assuming he talked to you about that. Yes. And he's, yep. he's doing plenty of stuff. And as, as a result of all the things that he does, I refer to this thing called Tom Time, which only he operates in this weird warped space-time fabric where, you know, something that may take, should take two months, actually takes two years. But it's not due to laziness. It's due to working on five vastly different things simultaneously and really finding the moments in which K, in which everything can work and, and progress. Right. I mean, yeah. we were doing life forms, and all of a sudden it was like, okay, i got to go direct this movie. I'll be back in two months or, or whatever it was. <laughs> and it's like, okay, uh, I guess I'll go work on all the material while you're doing the movie. And I was supposed to start scoring this stuff a year ago, and I've only gotten my, my hands dirty with it during this last tour. So the moment where it's ready for me to start working on is of course, when we're now doing our first tour since the pandemic <laughs> and everything happens to fall at the same time, but Tom time, it's a real thing. Um, I've enjoyed my Mr. Rubin time today. Oh, I've had a fantastic Seriously, record time. Thank you so much for sharing so hey, much from all the present stuff, which I, as I love, Love the songs that you create on your own. Thank you. And what a story you have. And again, I mean, we've talked about it over and over and over again, but you have been a professional basically your entire life in some of the biggest, most important projects. And it's like, it, and play all the instruments. It's, and you're in the Hall of Fame. It's very impressive. I hope you don't stop because music needs the way you think and the way you play. Mm. We, we as music fans need you. Well, thank you very much. I you appreciate that. Thanks for the time. Thank you. And honestly, I'm really glad that you like the music. I do. Because what we were talking about earlier, it, it almost means more to me when somebody says, I really like your songs because there's nothing else attached to that other than what I put into it. So thank you. Of course. All right. He is Elon Rubin. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you guys for watching. Thanks for listening. Uh, I am Ted Stryker. Happy snuggles. Bye-bye. And that's a wrap. Do you usually go this long? That's another episode of Strikers Tuna on Toast. Promise, it'll get better.
most likely. For sure. 